uh, CGTN was stripped of its UK broadcasting license. And so I do see that as a, as a significant victory in my fight back against the abusive and illegal uh, imprisonment that was inflicted upon me and my wife. It's hard for us to go back to China and try and uh, reverse things there. Uh, under the present leadership, it is not possible. Um, but here, I was able to be the first person ever um, to take legal action against a branch of the Chinese Communist Party and win. Today on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Peter Humphrey. Peter is a sinologist and former journalist who operated a fraud investigation consultancy in China with his wife. They were both imprisoned in China on false charges of illegal information gathering in what Peter called a shattering experience and a miscarriage of justice. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Peter Humphrey, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you folks. Uh, you're a British citizen, former journalist and a fraud investigator. Uh, how did you and your wife end up in a Chinese prison? Oh, well, I'm afraid there's no short answer to that question. Um, it really began um, with the love of China that I had that, that started when I was a teenager. Um, I was a teenager in the 70s when it was very unfashionable uh, to be interested in China, but I had a, a passion for different cultures and languages and uh, wanted to be different from all the other kids in terms of what they were going to study at university. Um, so I went off to university and studied Chinese studies, which was very rare at the time, and um, ended up getting a degree in Chinese studies and uh, went off to China on an exchange program. Um, became, then became a journalist, and I became a foreign correspondent for almost 20 years, um, not only working on, on China, but also working on Eastern Europe and the Balkans. Um, and um, after nearly 20 years in, in journalism, um, I entered the due diligence industry. Uh, that's a consulting industry where companies are helping their clients to understand the background of um, counterparties in their business and helping them to investigate fraud. So I, I joined the fraud investigation business essentially in Hong Kong and then took over um, the office of a big company in Beijing providing those services. And I worked in that industry for about 15 years of which the first five years were employed with, uh, with two large companies. And then 10 years um, with my own company I set up my own consultancy with my wife um, in 2003 and we specialised, you know, we were like a niche within a niche because we were not just due diligence and fraud uh, consultants, we were only focused on China and, and those problems that international companies have um, inside China in their business operations or challenges that they face in in doing contracts and things like that where they need to know what's going on um, behind the scenes in a company or they need to know the, the background and track record and reputation and affiliations of a business counterparty. So we provided that service in the specialised arena of, of, of China. Um, it was something where my language skills, my Chinese language skills were very, very useful and my background as a journalist was very useful um, for research and investigation purposes and I discovered I had a 
pretty good talent for selling those services to, to clients, which was a critical thing. Um, and for 10 years, my wife and I operated this company very successfully uh, with no trouble until in the 10th year, a very large international client uh, misled us about the reason for engaging our services and sent us into a collision course with a, with a police investigation. Um, as a result of that collision, um, we were arrested and detained um, and were held for two years. Why do you think you and your wife were treated so harshly? Ostensibly, you know, on the surface, um, we were uh, charged and convicted of um, acquiring information, personal information that is, by illegal means. Uh, and this is a charge that we always f uh, flatly denied. Um, we, we denied it throughout our, our detainment and, and, and imprisonment. Um, and that is reflected by one or two of the newspaper reports on the, on the trial proceedings. Um, but why were we, you know, given such a harsh sentence compared with many other people who had been arrested for that so-called offence? Um, it, it's really a case of selective prosecution um, or selective persecution, you might say, too. Um, there's one very well-known China law scholar based in Washington by the name of Donald Clark. Professor Clark wrote an extremely insightful analysis of our trial quickly after the trial took place. And he saw that this case was an outlier. He compared it with many other cases of that particular offence. And, and I also, um, while I was in, in, in um, detention, met other prisoners who had been arrested on that offence. And, and usually it was, it was for, for cases such as someone has stolen an entire database with millions of people's identity information on it, for, for example, from a travel agency or from a bank or somewhere like that. And yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, those people would typically be given not more than six months uh, detention for, for that offence that they committed. So why, why should we, who'd only um, been operating a due diligence business which provided analysis uh, and advice to our clients, be convicted under that charge? I think the truth is that, you know, like in many cases uh, in China, justice is selective and the way the law is used is often bent. And in our case, the investigation that we had carried out for a client into a particular individual's background and activities um, led to us being arrested because that person was highly influential and somehow our client enabled her to see uh, our report. She was furious and she had us uh, detained. Um, and that is the way justice works under the Communist Party in China. It's very selective, it's vindictive, it is used as a personal tool by members of the party and people with good connections in the party to take revenge on someone who they don't like. I've often seen that happening in business disputes where something that should be a purely civil matter, uh, going through a civil litigation or a dispute process such as a tribunal, um, suddenly becomes a criminal case for no good reason whatsoever. And that is because one side or the other has the strength and the influence, or the so-called guanxi, to be able to get somebody arrested and thrown in jail on trumped-up charges. And that is how I see uh, our case, where we were given, my, I was given two and a half years sentence and my wife a two-year sentence. 
plus fines, and in my case, plus deportation at the end of the sentence. That was extremely harsh for this charge, and is purely because it was personal. What was life like inside a Chinese prison? Well, you know, it's, it's a tough question for anyone who's had to, to endure uh, these things. Um, it really brings back all kinds of trauma and emotions. Mm. But my period of, of um, incarceration could be split into two, two periods. One is a period which I spent inside what is called a detention center, which is intended um, for pre-trial custody. But in fact, it's a penal uh, regime from day one. And then the second half of it is um, the period I spent in a regular prison, which was called Qingpu Prison in the suburbs of Shanghai. Um, so on detention, uh, we were thrown initially into this detention center. It's often called Shanghai Number no. One Detention Center. And it's in some alleyways uh, in a far-flung corner of Pudong. And um, it was a tremendous shock landing in those cells. Uh, my wife and I were, of course, kept separately. She was like on the fourth floor in a fourth floor cell, and I was in a second floor cell. Um, and the night I was thrown in there, I was basically, you know, stripped and put into a pair of um, shabby boxer, short, boxer shorts and thrown into this cell. And all I saw in front of me was um, row after row of pink quilts or pink blankets um, with uh, the top of a, you know, a, a shaven head sticking out from under the top of the blanket. And it was just a shock, such a shock to see I was here in this cell, 12 men sleeping on the floor. This was in the middle of the night, you know, so they were sleeping on the floor. Their heads pop out and they say, oh, it's a new, a new prisoner. Um, and so that was the beginning of my, my captivity. And I was completely traumatized to the extent that for, for about 40, 45 days, I, I, I felt I wasn't sleeping at all. I mean, I must have slept some, otherwise I would probably be dead, right? But uh, it, it just felt like I was, the whole night, every night, was, was, a, was a trauma, awakened trauma. And so this cell was um, 15 square meters uh, in floor area. And um, I would say about three, three square meters of that were the entrance and um, a sort of kitchen sink type area as well, and some little storage shelves. So that left 12 square meters where people would spend the day and spend the night. Um, and there's no furniture in these cells. They're completely unfurnished. So you sleep on a rough wooden floor. Um, you do everything on the floor. You, you sleep, you sit, you read, um, you eat all on the floor. Um, and there are bars at each end of the cell, bars at the door where I came in, and then the whole of the wall at the other end of the cell is just bars. So there's two corridors, one each, each end of the, the cell, passing by the cell where guards are patrolling in those two corridors. Um, and everyone is issued with a very minimal kit, you know, a, a, a plastic uh, washing bowl, um, a plastic cup, a two-inch toothbrush, you know, anything longer than that is considered to be a dangerous weapon, right? Um, uh, and, and these tiny Chinese thin towels which you use for everything um, there were no body towels um, 
and the food the food was served um, three times a day through the bars of the door by um, a team of um, convicted prisoners who were like labor for the detention center and a, tr a trolley would come and, and a couple of the prisoners in, in in the cell had designated roles as food collectors or food servers so they would take these doggy bowls across to the the bars pass them under the lower bar and food would be put in the bowl and it's passed back and then we would all be sitting all the detainees had to sit um in a sort of two lines face to f facing each other and we had these ima this imaginary table consisting of what you would call dish towels here in, in England or tea towels um, which was a pretend table and we ate along the two sides of that that arrangement um, and the food uh, was absolutely terrible um, it, it was basically um, cold gritty rice with grit that you could visibly see pieces of black grit and so forth in it um, and some rather scrappy bits of stir-fried vegetable and occasionally a, 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 a shred or a sliver or two of, of meat of protein and that was pretty much the norm uh, the whole time um, there was a prison shopping system in the detention center where um, if anyone had had money in their detention center account sent in by their family um, they could buy some snacks and other essentials like toiletries and uh, uh, new underwear and things like that, um, and the routine was was very, um, yeah, very depressing, um, because there was, you, you would wake up about six thirty to the call of a kind of electronic bugle in the yard, which sounded really um, something out of a horror movie, um, and um, the prisoners would all get up and then they would start circumambulating around the cell which is as I've said it's only 12 square meters of walking space kind of actually not quite because there are boxes but they would start walking round and round the cell in their plastic flip-flops everyone had plastic flip-flops and you could hear this clatter of flip-flops all the way down the corridor from every cell everyone was doing this because this was like the only kind of exercise that detainees could get in, in the cell and um and then after that, we would sit down, we would have our breakfast on the floor, and then after that, there would be a kind of another walkabout around the cell. And then a television, which was hanging from the ceiling, would be switched on, and it would start pumping out um, pre-programmed stuff, which the detention centre itself had packaged. They had a propaganda department in the detention centre, which packaged the programmes for this, this TV. And it would comprise of a mixture of... Um, um, propaganda lessons uh, talking about um, criminal cases and, and so forth and, and have a professor talking about what was wrong with these cases and so forth or, or a lecture from uh, one of the officers in the detention center and then there would be some um, very kitschy um, variety stuff you know pop pop songs pop groups singing and, and in the evenings there would be early evening there would be a soap of some sort which was usually um, a soap um, uh, drama serial about uh, the so-called anti-Japanese war when, when, when Chinese uh, were fighting the Japanese during the Japanese occupation um, and there would be um, you know, study sessions where we had to sit on red dots in a certain formation inside the cell and just sit still 
and listen to these kind of lectures and, and um, yeah, it was all extremely tedious. Not being able to lie on a bunk or a bed, not being able to sit on a chair, does tremendous damage to your joints and muscles and so forth. And during this time in the detention centre, for me about 13 months, um, I lost um, 10 kilograms, um, so I became quite emaciated, thin, and uh, developed all kinds of pains in, in, in my joints. So that was a, a terrible time, and another thing about the harshness of that is that you don't have any access to family members um, or friends, um, and you don't have direct access to your own, own lawyer. I mean, if you have a lawyer, um, the only way you can re reach out and try and contact him and get him to come and talk to you, meet you in, in the detention centre, is by sending out a letter. And they make it very difficult for you to send out letters. And when you do, you're only allowed to write one sentence. You can't explain anything to, to the lawyer as to what you want to ask him and so forth. Um, this is a deliberate obstruction of the right to organise your defence. Um, and you don't have access to your family, you can't call them, you can't contact them, and they can't visit you in the detention centre. And this is a violation of your right to access to your family, provided in international treaties that China has signed. Um, so there are many things going on that are, that are really highly irregular. And on top of that, um, you are going to be interrogated day after day when you're dropped into one of these detention centres, and I was, and so was my wife. Um, and you, you wouldn't know when they were coming, but suddenly one of the, the warders would call out your name and he would take you to the, the uh, interrogation block of, of this detention centre and you would be placed in an interrogation cell, which was laid out with, with people, uh, sorry, three policemen, usually three, um, sitting on like a little podium uh, with a desk on it, and you would be locked inside a cage inside that cell. So there's a, there's a steel cage um, with, a, with a steel chair in it, and you're put in that chair, you've got handcuffs on already, um, you're locked into this chair with a locking bar, and then you're locked into this cage. Um, that is how you're interrogated, day after day after day. Um, and when you get back to your cell afterwards, you find you've missed a meal or something like that. Um, so this went on for us for 13 to 14 months. Our trial happened about 13 months after our detention. Um, and um, uh, we were then transferred to a prison uh, a few weeks after the trial. So the regime is different in a detention centre and in a formal prison prison. So I was transferred to Qingpu prison, and unlike most Chinese prisons, Qingpu has um, a cell block which is exclusively for foreign prisoners. Right. So not every Chinese prison has that. Um, so in this cell block, um, there were about 150 foreign citizens imprisoned there when I was there. Um, the whole thing was another shock for me, you know, it was a deep humiliation that somebody like me with my background and so forth should have been arrested in the first place and then should be thrown into a prison and the prison should be 
the way it was. This was a tremendous shock. Um, when you arrive in, in the prison, they put you into what is called a training cell for a month. And you've got a prisoner inside that cell who is like um, the chief prisoner in the cell, right? And he's a bully. And he works together with an officer who is responsible for that cell, you know. Um, and he's basically whipping uh, prisoners into shape by training them to do certain work and follow certain discipline. For example, you have to fold your, your bedroll in some military military style, some military technique, just like you're living a barracks life, you know. Um, and uh, um, you have to memorize uh, 10 rules. Um, Chinese prisoners in Chinese cell blocks memorize 50 rules. Um, we had to memorize 10 rules, and we called them the Ten Commandments. There were very silly rules about um, what you're allowed to do when you receive a visit and, and uh, um, rules about secret communication or the use of secret languages or, or the use of any criminal techniques and things like that. Um, and every day we would get up around uh, 6.30, 7 a.m. Uh, the cell would be opened by, by a warder and then we would be allowed to go down to the yard to pick up uh, some boiled water using vacuum thermos flasks um, to collect the water um, and that would be each prisoner's hot water ration for the day if you wanted to try and make a hot drink or something like that um, and then we would come back up with our thermos flasks and then we would go to breakfast in a, a room which we called the activity room um, because the activity room was used for our meals it was used for assemblies um, and it was used for uh, labor, manufacturing labor, uh, and we would have a, a breakfast um, around seven or so, and, and it would consist of the same sort of rice we saw in the detention center, but also um, a steamed bun, which the Chinese call a manto. It's basically um, steamed bread bun, um, and some pickles. Uh, that was basically breakfast, and then at the midday and, and late afternoon meal um, would be similar to the detention center as well in that you know you would have rice and you would have um, a bit of meat and a bit of vegetable but in general the prison food was better than the detention center food at the time that I was there I know from talking to recently released prisoners that conditions have deteriorated substantially since then and during since the beginning of COVID they've only been eating dried noodles and they've not been allowed out of their cell to the activity room. They have to eat in the cell and it's pretty much dried noodles all the time. But when I was there, um, it was tolerable. I mean, obviously it wasn't, it wasn't very nice, but it was tolerable food compared with the detention center. And most of the prisoners um, are living in cells where uh, you've got 12 to a cell in that cell block. In a Chinese cell block, it could have been like 18 to a cell. We were like 12 to a cell, same size cell as the ones in the detention center, so the same limitations on space. But they had bunk beds, you know, so there were six bunks on each side wall. Um, so that's three and three, right? And three and three. Now these were rusty iron bunks um, and wooden boards, no spring or anything like that, um, no, no, no mattress. It's wooden boards, and you have like a a one centimetre 
thing that's not exactly a mattress, but it's it's the best thing you're going to get closer to a close to a mattress in there, and and you have a you have a sheet, and you have um, a duvet. Basically, it is it is a duvet cover with um, some felt fabric inside it. It's not a proper duvet, uh, and you have a single pillow, um, and the the bunk is probably. Less, it's probably less than a meter in, in in width, and you have a little storage box underneath underneath the bunk. Um, so that was the limited space, and everything was either either off white or grey. You know, the sort of white plaster on the on the walls and the the ceiling was rotting, and it was falling off. And the only furniture in the room in the cell, apart from the bunks, was a very tiny little wooden table about the size of those tables you find in IKEA for a children's room and, and two or three little stools. So I you know took advantage of the fact that we were allowed out of our cells into the into the um, activity room for certain periods of the day and I would always get out there and, and go in there so I got more room to, to move around and to read. Um, I was under a lot of pressure from the officers to sign false confessions um, and as you know I was forced to make a, a forced and false confession to Chinese television cameras during my time in the detention centre. In the prison after the trial even though we had been convicted of this false crime they were still pressuring us to, to, to try and get us to, to sign confessions, to write confessions, what they call an admission of guilt report and repent, repentance reports. Um, they do that constantly and other prisoners were doing this um, but I refused, I know that my wife also refused because we considered ourselves to be totally innocent um, and victims of false imprisonment and I guess in our case we knew that our sentences were relatively short compared with quite a number of other prisoners who are in there for, for life or 20 years or something like that. We knew that um, we were going to be getting out, in my case, after two and a half years, and in her case, after two years, regardless of whether we signed those confessions or not. Um, so we didn't sign them. Um, and as a consequence, I was, I was victimized on a daily basis by the officer in charge of my cell. Um, this man, who we call Captain Wei, um, was clearly assigned to supervise my cell because I was in that cell and his sole purpose was to harass me to the point that I would sign some kind of a confession and I refused um, and as a consequence they withheld medical treatment from me and I knew when I was arrested that I had suspected prostate cancer um, but I hadn't completed all the tests that I needed to complete such as scans for example when I was arrested and I kept on asking for attention, uh, for medical attention for that problem throughout the whole time that I was a captive. Uh, in the prison, Captain Wei clearly deliberately used this as a lever to try and extort confession uh, from me. So every, every time I mentioned my prostate condition and all the symptoms I was having, he would say, but you haven't signed a confession. Uh, he was known to be a sadist, and he often he often 
became physically violent towards other prisoners. Uh, it didn't get to that point with me, but he, he was really the most notorious captain, we call them, that all the officers are called captains, uh, in our cell block. Um, and it wasn't until 21 months into uh, my captivity that they finally gave me a scan under pressure from my embassy. And I had an MRI scan in the 21st month, and sure enough, I had a tumour. Um, so from that point on, um, they got worried, I think. Um, and I managed to get a call out you know, to my son about that tumour. I was allowed two calls per month, each lasting seven minutes. That's standard in Chinese prison. In the detention centre, you didn't get any calls, but in the prison, you get these calls. And I used my calls that month to tell my son about my prostate cancer and to ask him to go and stand outside the Foreign Office in London uh, when the press arrived there every morning and ask them why my country was going to welcome Xi Jinping with a red carpet a month or two later when a British businessman, an innocent, innocent British businessman with cancer was being held on false charges in one of his jails. And I'm sure that this was recorded and they picked up on this and uh, this call um, became a kind of scare for them, for the officers of the prison. Because um, I, I felt, you know, immediately after that, certain wheels started to move, even though I was supposed to serve two and a half years. Um, uh, senior officers from the prison, one after another, came to have meetings with me to try and persuade me to come to some kind of agreement to sign something amounting to a confession and then I could leave early, maybe leave with my wife and so forth and I calculated, hmm, and they said maybe she can leave a bit early too so I, cal I calculated that they must be targeting June of 2015 um, but I just simply said there's no way, you know I'm innocent um, I'm not going to sign this and so I know you can't release me early. I'm going to stay here until the very last day of my sentence, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, I don't think they liked being talked to like that, um, but uh, you know, I hadn't insulted anyone, I hadn't done anything wrong. Um, and gradually we went through a series of... It wasn't exactly negotiation, but a lot of these meetings and the most senior... Uh, officer in my cell block, in other words the commissar in charge of my cell block, ended up having a lot of meetings with me trying to work out some fudge um, uh, to get out of here and he would go back and forth from conversations with me to the telephone and he would be talking to someone higher up and so forth. And eventually um, we did come to an arrangement with some fudge in it with lots of ifs and buts and sorry if and so forth, that kind of language. And the wheels of uh, departure began to move. Um, they transferred me to a thing which we called the sub-brigade, the sub-brigade being a sort of offshoot of the main foreigners' brigade. And the sub-brigade was a place where they put prisoners with short sentences or prisoners with special uh, problems. There, were, for, for example, there were six Filipino lady boys living in the sub-brigade, a rather peculiar situation. Um, and there were one or two... Um, Chinese prisoners who um, 
were, were basically VIPs who were living in that. And they moved me after, um, after I had revealed to uh, my son and my consulate uh, that I had this prostate cancer. They moved me to the sub-brigade for some time while these negotiations took place. And, um, and then one day the senior officer said to me, we're going to send you to the hospital next week. So this is a, pr a prison hospital uh, outside of our prison. Um, there are many prisons in Shanghai, you know, and there's a general hospital for all the prisons, and it's located in another prison campus. Uh, and they said they were going to move me there. And, uh, and, and I said, well, how long for? And he said, mm, probably not that long. And I said, uh, well, am I coming back? And he said, probably not. It was a whisper uh, conversation. So, sure enough, I mean, they they um, they then officially announced that on the, I think it was like the, the 4th of June, <laughs> which was a very ominous day, um, I was transferred to the General Hospital of Shanghai Prisons um, inside Nanpu Prison. And uh, I was put in a small room there, not in a ward full of prisoners. There was only one other prisoner in this small room with me, and that um, prisoner was probably there to watch over me. He was a minder. And after five days there, um, I was uh, visited by a large number of officers, including the police investigation team who had interrogated me and my wife when we were initially arrested. Uh, two years earlier, and um, representative from uh, the court uh, and senior representatives from my prison, uh, senior officers from the hospital, <laughs> all came in and uh, told me that um, I was going to be released the next day. And the police team stayed on with me in the room and they took out a sheet of paper uh, one, this sheet was uh, like an official notice of my release issued by the court and I was back in the hands of these police because I was a deportation um, prisoner and they supervise, your original arresting officers have to supervise your deportation when you're deported. Um, and um, the second piece of paper they showed me was handwritten. And it was a list of, they wanted me to make ten promises to them. Of basically, ten taboos, you know, including things like, I will not contact the media, I will not uh, contact my consulate, I will not um, try to reverse the verdict, I will not tell Beijing what, what happened in Shanghai. You know, that was the last one on the list, which was kind of bizarre, right? Um, and I said to them, this is not a legal document and it has no legal force. This court document is the one with legal force. So I'm not, I'm not going to uh, respect any of these promises. And I signed it with the word under duress instead of my name, Peter Humphrey. I don't think they realized that at the time. And then we were transferred into a third form of, of captivity. Um, I had managed to get the judge to agree in correspondence with me to give us a grace period before deportation 
so that we could deal with some family matters and you know things like tidying up loose ends with with bank accounts and relatives and so forth. We have many Chinese relatives, and the judge had the judge had granted us uh, ten days, and um, so we were taken from the prison hospital separately. I still haven't seen my wife. Um, we were taken to a small hotel in Pudong where we were put in separate rooms. We still we didn't know each other was there. And I had police minders and I still had a prison officer with, with me. We sat in this room for like two hours. They brought KFC meals. And we all had a KFC meal in that room. And then after that, um, the uh, the prison officer said, well, would you like to see your wife now? And apparently she'd been in another room just down the corridor. And that was the moment. That was the moment when we met after going through all this. It was a dark corridor. It wasn't very clear. The light wasn't very clear. And I heard a voice saying, Peter, is that you? So that's how we were reunited. And then they took us off to another hotel which was better, bigger and better, and not that far from our original office premises. Um, and we were put in a room on the second floor of that hotel. The first thing I noticed was the bars on the window. Uh, and we were told that we couldn't leave the room um, uh, without permission, without escort. Peter couldn't leave the room at all. This is your 10-day grace yeah. period. Peter couldn't leave the room at all except to go to the restaurant downstairs uh, under escort. My wife Ying could leave the hotel under escort to go to the bank, to go to the travel agent, to go and visit her aunt and stuff like that. Um, and there was a second thing which the judge had granted me uh, in correspondence with him was that he agreed that I could have uh, my laptop back, or at least the laptop data, because they had seized it. Um, and I fought with the police for nearly ten days, uh, well, seven or eight days, over this. They just would not implement the judge's instruction. So in the end, they did not return my data. My data included important client data. I had responsibilities towards my clients. It included a lot of family data and so forth as well. Um, and I didn't get that back. Um, so realising that this was futile, we actually cut short our grace period by a couple of days and said, screw this, we want to leave tomorrow morning. And that is what we did. China's state broadcaster, um, CGTN, had a channel um, in the UK and they aired footage of you appearing to confess to a criminal offence. Uh, they were later sanctioned by Ofcom for presenting facts in an unfair way. Yeah. Uh, later on, they actually lost their license. Mm. And that must have felt like quite a victory. Yes. I mean, this affair with uh, CGTN all began while I was in the detention centre in 2013, um, less than two months after we were detained. We were put through a scenario of forced confession on television not fully understanding what was happening to us. Um, I had thought I was just going to meet two or three print journalists who were going to ask me questions and write something. 
um, but it actually I was handcuffed, I was locked inside a tiger chair, inside a steel cage. And you can see the vertical bars, the steel bars behind me in some of the images that appeared on screen when this was broadcast. I gave no consent uh, to this uh, television interview. It was done against my will. And the only person who asked questions was my chief interrogator, the police officer. His name is Inspector Ding Tudong. And he had a clipboard with a list of questions that he, you know, and he obviously wanted them to be answered in a specific way. And I wriggled and wriggled. I mean, I was also feeling drugged because that morning before being taken to that, that room, um, I had been given a sedative by um, uh, the prison doctor um, because I was in a constant state of anxiety attacks and stuff like that. And I was dopey when I went into that cage, and I was sitting there, you know, trying to navigate between saying something that would get me out of the cage and not falsely incriminating myself. So, you know, I basically used lots of ifs and buts and, and conditional, uh, conditional clause constru constructions and so forth to try and avoid self-incrimination. But, you know, I was so dopey and under so such intense duress during this whole thing, you know, I may have said one or two phrases that they could easily use by cutting and pasting um, to incriminate me. And, uh, you know, there was not a single journalist there who asked me any questions. There were only cameras. There were some people taking notes. They may have been journalists, you know, scribe journalists. Um, but essentially... This was a police interrogation disguised as a so-called interview. It was nonsense. And then they did it again a month before our trial in 2014, but without the cage, because I, I insisted um, that I was not going to sit in a cage. And the second time it was done in a meeting room. Um, and it was more, there was less control on, on the second occasion. And certainly on that occasion, I did not at all admit to any kind of offence. So after I was released and arrived in the UK, um, I got very busy with dealing with my cancer and other health problems which they caused. Um, but after a while, I got to realise that um, there was this potential channel for uh, filing a complaint over these broadcasts. Um, I was advised by a human rights organisation called Safeguard Defenders, um, who were very supportive, and they helped me to draft the things I needed to draft to file a complaint to Ofcom. The point here is that um, CGTN and CCTV, with these broadcasts, first of all, they violated Chinese law because those broadcasts violated my right to a fair and transparent trial. These broadcasts happened before, the first one happened before I was indicted. Um, they both happened before we had been tried or convicted. Um, so these were violations of Chinese law and the right to a fair trial under the Chinese constitution. But as they were broadcast globally, they violated the laws of many other countries on certain legal and ethical principles of broadcasting. And the UK has the most robust television regulator in the world. Um, 
and that's Ofcom. And Ofcom polices um, the broadcasting act activities of broadcasters. It also administers a licensing system. And anyone issued with a broadcasting license here must follow the UK Broadcasting Code, the law. And there were multiple uh, points on which these Chinese broadcasters had violated that code, such as the right to privacy, the right to consent, um, you know, um, under duress, these kind of things, um, distortions of facts, uh, inaccuracy, a number of fronts in which they'd seriously violated it. So I filed this complaint about my own broadcasts, um, and it took two years, but it ended up in me winning that case, um, and they were fined. Um, I also filed with Safeguard Defenders another uh, complaint about the control and ownership of CGTN. Um, we used my investigation background to conduct an investigation into um, the history and structural changes of and ownership and so forth of CGTN over the years to prove that they had obtained their license fraudulently. Fraudulently because they had actually interposed, when they obtained the license, they had interposed a completely unknown third-party company in whose name the license was issued. Um, and they had then set about building up an operation in the UK which uh, broadcast, basically broadcast Communist Party propaganda. The key thing in this second complaint is that our broadcasting code explicitly prohibits licenses to be issued to broadcasters who are owned and controlled by a political party. So we, we demonstrated that, and as a result of that, uh, CGTN was stripped of its UK broadcasting license. And so I do see that as a, as a significant victory in my fight back against the abusive and illegal uh, imprisonment that was inflicted upon me and my wife. It's hard for us to go back to China and try and uh, reverse things there. Uh, under the present leadership, it is not possible. Um, but here, I was able to be the first person ever um, to take legal action against a branch of the Chinese Communist Party and win. Um, and I think that was an important lesson for many activists and many NGOs, that there are mechanisms in many countries like that, regulatory mechanisms, not necessarily a court, where you can uh, punish offensive organisations like CGTN. So that was uh, a very significant uh, sense of exoneration which I felt when we won that battle. Uh, in 2019, uh, by this point, you're, you're free again. Um, there was a little girl who opened her Christmas cards that she got from Tesco. Mm. Um, she's writing them and finds one that already has a message written inside it. And this message is a, a plea for help mm. from the Chinese prison where, where you were, and it actually mentions you by name. Could you tell us a bit about what happened? Well, this was... This was a shock to me when, when this card was discovered. Um, it was a, a pleasant shock, though. Um, yes, this little girl called Florence Widdicombe, um, who was six years old at the time, um, she lives in, in South London, um, she had bought a pack of Tesco 
Christmas cards, you know, very cheap, small cards with little kitties um, in Santa hats. Uh, and um, she was writing these cards to her schoolmates, her classmates. And suddenly she found one that had been written on. And she you know, called out to her parents, oh no, this one's already been written on. And she thought it was funny. She was giggling at the time. And then her dad looked at this, and he, he looked at the message, and he realised that this was actually something quite serious. Um, and the cards on the box of the cards said, Made in China. And the message inside this card was written in pencil, uh, in capital letters, and it said something like, we are foreign prisoners in Shanghai Qingpu prison, forced to work against our will. Please contact human rights organizations and Peter Humphrey. And it said something like Peter Humphrey at ft.com. Because these the prisoners in that cell block, my cell block, the foreigners' cell block in Qingpu prison, that's where it came from. And they knew that I had written an article for the FT magazine after I was released from there. Um, in fact, I had smuggled a copy of that article into the prison uh, through a consular channel. So they knew all about that, and they assumed that I was working for the FT, so that's why they wrote that. So this little girl's father, Ben, um, he, th he thought, I'm going to find this guy. Who is this guy? So very quickly he found out who Peter Humphrey was, and he made contact with me through LinkedIn. Um, he told me about the card. He gave me a snapshot of it. We had a, then we had a conversation and so forth. I explained to him the significance of this. So what we have here is a card coming from prisoners in my original cell block complaining about the fact that they're now being forced to engage in manufacturing labor. When I was there, it was optional. Now it was being... You know, they were being pressured to do it. And this labour included manufacturing small items such as packaging components, tags and things like that, and keyboards, things like that. Um, small, small items, which was all manual, no machinery needed, no factory floor with machinery. It was all done in our workroom, in, in, in our cell block. Um, and over the time I was there, I saw a number of... Uh, well-known company names on, on packaging boxes that stuff was coming in and going out, um, including H&M, C&A, 3M. And after I left, I picked up little bits and pieces of intelligence from prisoners who left the, the prison about new things they were making. And I also occasionally got a letter from a prisoner about new things that they were making, very carefully sort of woven into um, other text inside the letter. So I was aware of the fact that some even more important brand names were being handled. And then this was just manna from heaven, confirmation uh, of what I was already kind of onto. And I was in this position where I was able to confirm it because, first of all, I'm a professional due diligence investigator. I'm also a professional journalist. And I had been inside that cell block, I knew prisoners there, and I was continuing to track prisoners who were released, using them as sources of information. So I spoke to six or seven or eight uh, prisoners who had been released that year, 2019, from Qingpu, on five different continents, and confirmed that indeed 
those Tesco Christmas cards were packaged. Some of these witness, witnesses actually participated in the packaging. Others simply saw it. Um, and I learned the, the identity of the first one. Um, I learned the identity of a Nigerian man who had been one of the authors, two authors, of ten Christmas card messages. He was out, so I was able to interview him. And he told me the identity of the other person, which confirmed what I suspected because I recognised the handwriting in the card which I saw. Um, and that man is still in Qingpu, so I cannot give you any clues about his identity for his own safety. And knowing the media and having old friends in the media, it was easy for me to go to a newspaper and say, look, I've got this story, I want to do it myself. Um, uh, you've got to guarantee that I do it myself and... I'm going to do this investigation. You can fact-check everything, verify everything, and so forth. So they, they agreed. And then this story about the Christmas card packaged by prison slaves, I didn't write the headline, you know. <laughs> Newspapers do that. Um, it came out just three or four days before Christmas, the Sunday before Christmas, in the Sunday Times. And, you know, it was just perfect timing for the story, given the nature of the story perfect timing and it became viral you know in the early, in the earlier part of my life where I worked for nearly 20 years as a journalist I never had a story which went so viral as that one um, that was the greatest story I think I ever had the opportunity to write from that unique position of knowing the knowing the cell block knowing the prisoners um, knowing the media and knowing how to investigate and drill down so this was a remarkable thing. I, I consider that to be one of my victories as well. Since, And as a result of that, I've become um, quite deeply involved in monitoring uh, prison labour situations in China and helping um, other prisoners with their problems. How should we in, in the West view this connection between the shops where we go and buy our Christmas cards and people in prisons in China doing forced labour? I think it's really hard, um, both for consumers and for businesses, to avoid making products or buying products that are not tainted by prison labour or other forms of socially uh, not acceptable labour in China. And one of the reasons for this is that, you know, first of all, all of Chinese prisons operate this system. Every single Chinese prison. And until a decade ago, every single detention centre, pre-trial, also operated this kind of labour. And it has become an integral part of the prison system. It's part of the prison system's funding because this manufacturing activity is commercial profit-making activity, and it's the prisons who are making this profit. They have no incentive to reduce the sentences of prisoners anymore, because if they do, they'll have less prisoners, and they need the prisoners to do this manufacturing. So it's, it's basically, prisons in China have become a huge enterprise, uh, and that is hard to, to break down. Secondly, it has become impossible to do proper enhanced due diligence into your supply chain in China because of all the restrictions and dangers of trying to conduct any kind of investigation. 
So if you want to drill down through the supply chain, checking out what this supplier is up to and what their sub-suppliers are up to and so forth and so forth, drill all the way down and find your way to a prison, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So companies, um, most companies that get tangled up in these supply chains actually have no way of knowing it. So there's an element of forgiveness in me towards companies. With Xinjiang, I would say it's probably a different matter. I don't think any Western business should have anything to do with any enterprise in Xinjiang. But for the rest of China, you know, it's impossible for them. And then when it comes to consumers, they look at goods. Some people might say, I'm not buying that, it's made in China. But most people wouldn't say that. Most people would oh, it's made in China. And they're not thinking about this kind of thing, right? This case that I wrote about um, did actually help to spread a lot more awareness in the world about this problem. Some years before that case, there had been another case involving involving Walmart in the US where Halloween decorations uh, were sold in a Walmart shop and one, one box had a, a secret message from a prisoner in a prison in China in a place called Masanjia. That became um, a big sensation, that story. But then after a year or two, people forget about it, right? And uh, so my story came along. It caused a lot of a lot of noise at the time. Um, and I don't think it's completely gone away this time because I think um, a lot more organizations are paying attention to this. NGOs are much louder and more informed, um, putting a lot more pressure on, on business in general and on governments over this problem. But it's very difficult for anybody to drill down so the only way really to avoid this is to cease operations in China. Go somewhere else. When I was a due diligence advisor 15 plus years ago, I was always advising my audiences, you're putting too many eggs in one basket in China. If something goes wrong, uh, it's going to be painful for you. You should have a China plus policy for your, for your supply chain and so forth. Um, they didn't listen, <laughs> uh, and you know we had these situations arise. But we do we do now see this gradual movement, for example, to Mexico um, and so forth, and that's the only solution. So long as you have a regime and a leadership in power in China that obstructs due diligence and insists on using prison labour in its general industries. Since your release, you've spent some time helping people who's friends, family, loved ones are uh, going through Chinese prison ordeals. Do you think that people feel they'll get the same kind of justice they would get in the West in, in these Chinese uh, prisons? I think, you know, until, until it happens to you or your family, you don't really think about this. And <clears throat> unfortunately, a lot of people in the West were misled for, for many years into thinking that China was somehow under the rule of law. And of course, it never was. Before Xi Jinping took power, China was moving gradually, slowly, closer to a state of rule of law. Um, but since he took power, everything has been thrown into reverse gear. Um, and essentially, there is no rule of law in China today. All legal uh, mechanisms are arbitrarily used in China. Um, so no one should expect justice in China in the same way that you would receive it in, in courts here in the UK or in America. And 
my experience of, of, of mentoring families going through these ordeals grew out of my own experience. Um, after I left Qingpu prison, um, I worked to help several prisoners who I knew were innocent and who had horrendous sentences. I'm still working for them. Um, one is out, but I'm still working for a couple of them. And, and then back a few years ago, I got involved in a, a case in Shenzhen where an American basketball coach had been detained and was being accused of murder, um, and it was all it was all nonsense. You know, he had he had been involved in a little scuffle defending a young lady um, against someone who was beating her up, and the other person had fallen over, and the next day he was dead. And um, this poor man, you know, was was being accused by the dead man's family of murder, and this wasn't a murder at all. This was a case of a, of a customer of a prostitute. Um, physically, violently beating this prostitute, and a man on the street saying, "Oh, you can't, you can't do that." Anyway, I got involved and, and I mentored his fiancée, who was trying to get him out, and I guided her through a number of practical steps, and we got him out. We got him out without him being prosecuted, and that was written about um, by CNN, a long article on CNN website. Uh, wrote about this, and it, the article also went into more detail into the fact that I was helping one or two other families who'd approached me, because the publicity around my own case led families to try and find me and contact me and ask me for advice, and this continues to this day. You know, I still get new ones, and um, I'm currently mentoring um, the relatives of, of around 15 prisoners, 15 to 20 prisoners in China. Some of them are Europeans, some of them are Af uh, Americans, some are Africans, some are Asians. Uh, many sad cases, um, several life sentence people, a couple of death row people. Um, some of them are on drugs charges, some of them are on fraud charges, some of, some of them are on assault charges and so forth. Um, it's a mess and every time I look at a new case I see injustice. I think my final thought on that particular topic is this. Not a single prisoner among all the millions of prisoners in China, in all the facilities in China, not a single prisoner has ever had a fair and transparent trial. And for that reason, we should support our citizens when they get detained in China. If someone was thinking about going to live or work in China, is what happened to you a freak occurrence, or should they be thinking twice, in your opinion, about that decision? What happened to me at the time it happened, in 2013, um, you could say it was a freak occurrence, but in a way it wasn't, because there was a steadily building trend. Um, foreigners were, were fair game now, you know. Um, uh, so it wasn't really a freak occurrence. But the detentions and imprisonment of foreigners in China has dramatically ballooned uh, since my case. In other words, during and throughout the rule of Xi Jinping, the number of foreigners thrown in jail has dramatically expanded. And this is part of his mindset, his mentality. One of the first things he told his officials when he came into power was build more prisons, build more prisons. Right? He knew he was going to throw a lot more people into prison, including foreigners. And 
you know, as we've seen with a number of high-profile cases, mine being the first one, and then later a couple of others, um, there was Sandy Fangulis in America, there was, you know, there was the two Michaels, and I'm aware of some cases which should be high-profile, but who, where the families are keeping low. Um, bearing all this in mind, you know, I don't think it is safe for anybody to go to China. It is simply not safe. Peter Humphrey, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. You're welcome.